Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best panels pertaining to RPG design and publishing. This has been made possible by Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show! Episode 39, Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition Analysis, presented by Rob Donahue and Jason Pitr at Metatopia 2014. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. Good God. All right. I think I need to talk near this thing so it gets picked up, but I don't think anyone quite needs the full-on movie phone voice. Uh, welcome to an analysis of the 5e. It sucks. We're done. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue of Evil Hat Games. Uh, I've written a little bit of stuff for Watsi and 4e. I wrote what may be the single longest review of the player's handbook. Um, I'm not sure if that's something to be proud of or ashamed of, but uh, that uh, review was long enough to be its own book. And my editors, to whom I know freelance work, I apologize for the distraction. Uh, and I'm Jason Pitt, who was reading the entirety of the said book. And was fascinated and wanted to make sure that Rob had an excuse to talk about everything in detail at a convention panel. <laughs> That's why I created this. Yes, Jason is a terrible person. Um, Alright, so I'm going to lay the first bias right on the table. I'm very pleased with 5 uh, I think it turned out really well. Uh, no system is flawless. There's always stuff to get into, and it's also still a young enough system that... Some problems may emerge over time, uh, but this is going to be a fairly positive analysis. <coughs> if you got the hate on, that's totally cool, but it's not going to sway my needle too much. Um, anything you want to roll into before I start rambling? Uh, generally, the what I was wanting to get out of this panel and wanted to share was the various gems that not everyone might have seen in 5 e there's a lot of system there, of course. It's teeny. There's always going to be a lot to it. But there's a lot of things that are either uh, repurposed indie mechanics that have been brought into uh, the mainstream, and that's notable, uh, new ways of presenting material, or in some cases, actual uh, mechanical innovations that we just haven't seen other in other places. Um, so I wanted to highlight the various areas where DD contributes something to the uh, future design work of various designers in the community. All right. Uh, let's open up a little bit with pedigree. Uh, first edition D&D and all the cloud and the white boxes around it, there's a certain amount of that is foundational stuff. Everything in the D&D sphere that came after that rests on that uh, for, for good and for bad. Um, and I'm not going to try to draw lines back to from 5e to first edition out of an attempt to prove that it's some kind of old school sort of thing. It's there. The influence is inescapable, uh, but it is probably a little bit less explicit. The ties back to second edition D&D are actually a little bit more visible. Uh, a little? Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. A lot. Uh, for folks who survived the transition from first edition D&D to second edition D&D, 
there was a lot of streamlining and a lot of simplification of things that had been much more fiddly in the first edition. Uh, one of the finest examples of this is, if anyone remembers, the weapon versus armor type table. And they kept that in second. They did, but they greatly streamlined it. Weapons were three categories, piercing, slashing, or bludgeoning, and armor would provide a minus two to a plus two based on its type. The only types were basically leather, chain, plate, and nothing. We had a very nice roll after kind of yeah, yeah. Um, and it should be noted that was also an optional rule, yes. which is something that Second Ed brought in. Yes, and that's and that's for good and for ill. Exactly, and that's a good example of the kind of thinking that went into Second Ed. Of we're going to pay attention to what people have been doing and what they've been playing, and we're going to streamline the rules to reflect that. And I think that's part of the reason that Second Ed was really the renaissance for settings for TSR and later Watson. Uh, that's where you got the planescapes and the spell jammers and the dark suns and a lot of the forgotten realms uh, really blossomed in that. That's that period for that. Um, third edition adopted a lot of game technologies that were the things that had been learned from the um, You had a slightly crunchier system. You had a lot of the things that had been done out of tradition. Uh, get replaced with things that were maybe more mechanically consistent. Probably the most iconic change in that regard being the changing how stats were handled. Rather than each stat being its own table with particular rules for how things went and things like percentile strength, nope, every stat worked the same way and had the same plus distribution. Oh, and by the way, roll high. Um, it was a nice cleanup. Transition to fourth was a bit more drastic. Um, and we could probably spend an entire session just talking about what fourth did well and what fourth did poorly. Uh, but I think whatever conclusion you come to, fourth was not uniformly well received. Uh, it is the things that fourth did that people did not like, which frankly is the reason that Pathfinder is as big as it is today. Uh, because it continued to serve that audience where 4th Ed went to something that was a fantastic, pure game. Uh, the actual combat system in 4 was fantastic, and if you approach it from a certain, actually, weirdly hippie narrative perspective, which seems at odds with the amount of tactics that was going on, but there it is, uh, the whole thing hung, hung together very well. But it was not the D&D experience that people were looking for. And it is with all that in mind that we come to five. Uh, before that, I wanted to mention one other thing from Third Ed that's spilled over um, was character differentiation and character development and growth. The prestige classes and extensive multi-classing options and feats yep. in Third Ed meant that D&D came from a game of I am playing Fighter the Fighter, who has this fun kit, yay. Um, to I have three levels in Assassin, two levels in uh, Blood Sorcerer, and oh, I've got the speed that lets me do some fun chain attacks. Yeah. And this is where we start coming back to the, the two-e type. So if we were to look at 5e, uh, my comparison to 5 when I described 5e, I say if you could hop back in time to at the point when second edition would be getting a little bit long in the tooth, and you could take all the lessons that got learned in 3E and all the lessons that got learned in 4E, the game you would make would look a lot like 5E. Uh, because 
some of the things. It looks at looked at and said, this was really cool that got too complicated, so let's streamline that. And some things it said, that never worked, but it was a great idea. Let's see if we can make that work. Um, my favorite example of this is probably kids. Now, those of you who played in second edition D&D will remember the kits as the things that came in sort of those brown, faux leather covered, complete fighters book and complete games book. And what they were were modifications that you could apply to one of your classes. So if you could, instead of playing a straight fighter, you could play a swashbuckler fighter uh, or a local hero fighter or something like that. Uh, Conceptually, they were a lot of fun. They introduced a lot of interesting variety of the characters. Mechanically, they were terrible. Um, they were all over the board in terms of mechanical benefits. Some of them were vastly overpowered. Some of them were useless or actually made your character worse. Um, the idea was great, but the implementation fell down. Um, yeah, I view that less of a design problem and more of a product development problem. Almost certainly. Um, in part because I think the ones that act, a lot of the kids that made your character worse made them better characters. So yeah, I, I have a soft spot for them. I, uh, this, is, this is from an interesting time in, in, in Watsi slash TSR history because the end, if you're interested, there's a fantastic series of books, Designers and Dragons, that have just hit the market talking about the history of RPGs for the past 40 years. Uh, <laughs> Um, but you got a lot of them were, I think, the result of a lack of an underlying rule set that they were all applying to, and a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, you got some very interesting things. There was a swashbuckler kit that actually showed up in all of the various handbooks, which was actually pretty cool. It was one of the cleverest ideas I'd seen in D&D at that point, because basically, if you were a fighter, it gave you some extra cool swashbuckler stuff, and if you were anyone else, it meant that you could fight like a fighter with a swashbuckling weather. So suddenly, if you wanted to play that Three Musketeers-style game in, in second edition d and you had a way to do it, and that was great. And if all the kits had been that cool, then they would have been a triumph, but they weren't. 5e has brought this idea back in the form of backgrounds. Backgrounds, mechanically. Uh, I'm going to talk through some of the stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume most people have seen it, but I'm going to talk through things on the assumption that there's not a, a deep level of familiarity. Um, backgrounds in 5e are similar to kits. They are descriptive elements of your character. Criminal, local hero, soldier. Something that would describe a character outside of the context of your class. Which mechanically provide you a little bit of starting gear uh, some sort of mechanical slash story uh, advantage, which is usually tied to the fiction. If you are a soldier, it means you've got ties to the army that you were a part of, and you can potentially call in favors from there. Uh, if you're a criminal, you have underworld contacts. All very cool stuff. And you get, generally speaking, two skills. Um, this is actually kind of a big deal, because you do not get a lot of skills as a 5 character. Uh, and this is important. The skill list isn't huge, so there's not a real gap, but which skills you choose matters a lot to your character. And most classes get two skills. The slightly skill-heavy classes, uh, bards and rangers, I think, get rogues, get three. Um, and one of, and I think the rogues get four, but the rogue list is more limited. Bards get three, but, they can, but they've got a wider choice. Uh, I think, and Rangers get three, but it's uh, But the bottom line being, 
even if you're picking up one more skill from your class, two skills says a lot about your character. Enough so that while the backgrounds technically come after everything else, they may end up being one of the most important parts of character creation. And when we start seeing setting books and stuff coming out, they're going to start being the ways you can define a setting. Um, you can use all the core D&D classes, no problem at all, but we're also going to add in these, these, uh, these backgrounds that reflect Planescape. The, the backgrounds, for, if for Planescape, you could have each of the factions be a background, and that would play perfectly well. Now, this is setting aside the fact that 5e is also doing other stuff with factions, but we're still seeing that evolve, so I'm not going to speak to that precisely. So Rob, what are we playing in our all, all charlatan? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that, that's going to be fantastic. Well, all sailor. That's so. One of the things that was very popular thing to do in three E was because multi-classing was so easy. You could have everyone start with one with one level of the same class. You could do an all rogue game or an all fighter game or whatever, and then people could multi-class off from that. But it gave them a common root that they could play from. In five E, you could say we are all we were all soldiers. This is the black company game. And whereas in previous editions, if you wanted to do a black company game, it was kind of hard to say, all right, well, then most of us will be fighters, and then other people are sort of specialists, but it feels not. No, we're all soldiers. And these are the things that we do. Uh, it is a great way to tie a group together. This is just a really powerful tool for a whole lot of setting design and a whole lot of campaign design. It seems like a very small thing, but it's one of the examples of how 5e is giving us the things that let you really shape the game into what you want it to be without it being too much of a headache. <clears throat> now, something I'd like to highlight with this is the class plus background is almost as if it's pick one from column A, one from column B. Almost. Almost, which uh, I'm, I'm speaking about. This is, anyone who's played any World of Darkness games is familiar with this template um, because it's a great template. Um, if you give someone an unlimited range of choices, then you can get a little paralyzing. If you offer them only one choice, then that can be great, but eventually you start getting repetitive. If you just offer two choices from reasonably robust lists, the common range of combinations becomes both enough that you get both the diversity of outcomes but the ease of selection. And class plus background is where it is. In fairness, race plus class has historically been a way to do this too. Um, and 5e races hold up pretty well. Uh, they're a little more interesting than in previous ones. There's some fun mechanical things like the fact that dwarf wizards are going to be running around in armor, um, which I really hate. But uh, the fact that they decided to say, yeah, let's jazz it up a little bit further with backgrounds goes a long way. I think it's actually slightly further from the uh, white wolf uh, background, and uh, um, I'd like actually like to highlight the uh, danger patrol. As more of a Fair mechanically enough. significant longer list compared to you, you will never hear me arguing against the influence of John Harper on the game design. So <laughs> uh, that's that's probably a fair comparison. But since Jacob Patrol's never actually been finished, that's also not an entirely fair comparison. Okay, thought Lord of the Marks. He finished that one. Okay, fair enough. But, yeah. <laughs> Don't you think some of the kit stuff also got folded into the way subclasses work? I don't know if you were playing yes. that. So, uh, yeah. Sorry, but yeah, no, no. the subclasses get back into the classes a little bit. Um, but let's, let's delve into that. The 
Subclasses have always been part of D&D, but in kind of a weird way. Um, originally, the Ranger and Paladin were technically subclasses of fighting, uh, but I don't know anyone who played it that way in any meaningful way. Uh, that was not, they, they were classes, and that's what they felt like. And that was the way they always continued to present, and that's the way they're still presented in 5e. What 5e has done is like to say, this idea of a subclass is very powerful. So let's stick with what we've got in terms of classes. So all the classes are very familiar, uh, with the exception of the Warlock, which was brought in with, with 4e. Uh, the classes are largely the ones that you know and love from the, from the original edition. Yes, bards are their own class now. Yes. Uh, monks and barbarians are always a weird thing, but they're all fairly familiar. Uh, but subclasses allow us to address that issue of, I'm playing a fighter, you're playing a fighter. How different are our characters? Well, I'm playing a, a, a fighter that's got a bazillion, I'm playing, actually I'm playing a, uh, what's the name of the spellcaster? Eldritch Knight. Eldritch Knight. One of the things they basically did is say, hey, you want to play a magic using uh, fighter? You don't have to multi-class. Just take the subclass of fighter that ditches a lot of the cool extra moves in favor of getting spells. And in favor of being able to do cool magic swordy stuff, because cool magic swordy stuff is an essential part of these things. Um, in adding subclasses, they've given us a lot more diversity in terms of what you get out of playing things in class. But they also very subtly have made the classes easier to play. Uh, and the fighter is a fantastic example of this. Because the fighter has, in addition to the Eldritch Knight, has a martial, a battle master, and a martial champion. And these are the best example of the difference of what you can do with a subclass. The uh, battle master has a currency. He gets these dice, which can be used, can be spent for special moves. He's got this list of special moves that you pick a couple from, and when you level up, you pick a couple more, and so you sort of custom build your guy. You want to build a swashbuckling kind of guy? Great. You take this move that gives you mobility, and this one gives you parry and repose and stuff. Oh, you want to build an archery kind of guy? Great. You take this one. You want to take a classic tank kind of guy? You take this defensive one and this counter and you can build it as far as you like. Marshall Champion? Yeah, here. Have some passive bonuses. You do not have to worry about anything. You're just going to be more badass. And that offers us both a greater range of play opportunities for players, but also a greater range of complexities, which is something that's really important to bear in mind, especially if you're D&D, for the on-ramp. If you are a new player, some classes are just easier to play than others. And frankly, the fighter martial champion may be the single simplest one to play in the game, but despite that simplicity, is still fun, potent, and effective. And that is a great trade-off. Um, and something to highlight, um, well, two things. One, uh, we'll note, you don't need to multi-class. Yep. This is a key divergence from third ed. Um, in that you can design a very interesting, diverse, unique character just based off the... The subclass. Yeah, the subclass. To, to, to take an example of something that doesn't... It is reasonably easy mechanically to add a new subclass. Because all subclasses do is you look at the subclass for that class, and it says it gives you an ability at level here, level here, level here, and level here. If you can come up with a new set of abilities, you can come up with a new subclass. That's that's possible. So, let's say, for example, uh, I want to do a, a skull. I want to do a, a Viking bard kind 
the guy. It would be very easy for me to basically take the Eldritch, Eldritch Knight template and apply it to the Barbarian, and instead of making it magic user spells, make it bardic spells. Swap out one or two of the swordy things for one or two uh, bardic song sort of things, and bam, I have a subclass, and it covers a flavor, and it allows me to do it within the scope of one class without having to introduce a normal class. Which is super handy because it's almost as if multi-classing is the basis of 90% of the uses in third edition. <laughs> but I, I, think you, I think you'll find um, in, in playtesting some of the stuff that I've been working on, we, we've been running through against the giants at 12th level. And where one of the characters did decide to multi-class, and you actually see how almost hamstrung you end up if for no for nothing else, if you don't uh, multi-class at those four level breakpoints, yep. And I think we can say, well, I'm making a 12th level character. I'll take four of this and eight of this. But if you're building your character along the way, you're like, I'm not waiting four levels to get you know the next to get level. the cool thing yeah. exactly. Well, multi-classing is an option. Yes, exactly. The GM doesn't even have to allow it. Right, and that well, that's that was one of the things that kind of blew me away as I was reading through 5e is that I admit I totally assumed that I would be multi-classing because. I played, a, I played the hell out of 3D, um, and I was expecting to step back into that mode, and I was expecting multi-classing to be the way I customize characters, and discovering that that was not a necessity, and that between subclasses and backgrounds, because there's the other thing that backgrounds would kind of be very handy for. If you want to play that kind of scummy fighter who's got a little bit of thiefiness to him, historically you need to multi-class in a little bit of rogue, otherwise you couldn't cover those things at all. But instead, if you just take a criminal background, bam, you've got your scummy fighter without needing to get tied up in, in a lot of crazy mechanics. And that kind of speaks to a lot of what makes 5 work is that focus on what gets you to play fastest and easiest. Um, and, and this is where I'm going to just sort of side swing into the single best mechanic of the game. Hey, before that, yep. Um, also wanted to highlight that subclasses are effectively prestige classes rather than yep. rather than kits. I think they're more of an evolution on the prestige class. They're prestige classes that pay off earlier and start at second level, yep. so you can get your well, feet first under you with first the basic third level, which where where they start depends on the class. I thought they were all university nope. second. Nope. Paladins start at third. Um, oh, okay. Warlocks are one. Fighters are four. Oh, okay. Uh, it, well, and it, and it, it actually is kind of a nice thing because even that tells you a story about the right, class. Right. The fact that paladins have it at three, paladin, the, you picking your subclass is effectively you swearing your holy oath. Um, if anyone remembers zero level characters, weirdly, this gets you some of that same vibe of zero level characters without the oh my god a kitten it's going to kill us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes, single best mechanic. single best mechanic. Advantage, disadvantage. This is the thing that has has transformed the game. Um, for the unfamiliar, the advantage and disadvantage system is simply this. If you are, for whatever reason, in a position where you should have some sort of advantage on a roll, the GM no longer sort of figures out what the plus would be. Instead, you pick up a second D20. You roll them both, and you keep the better one. If you are in a position where you would have a disadvantage on a roll, things are going bad, you're fighting in the mud, whatever, you pick up a second d20, you roll them both, you keep the less good of the two rolls. That's the entirety of it. 
bit that gets interesting is where the stack is where stacking kicks in, which is to say it doesn't. If you were talking about numerical advantages, if you were picking up a plus two because you had a better weapon, and a plus two because you had elevation, and a plus two because, I don't know, it's Tuesday, uh, then <laughs> you as a player have every incentive to try to hoard those advantages and, and try to get every single bit of one. And that's not doesn't tend to make for very fun or very fast play. So right off the bat, no matter how many advantages you have, it's one advantage. Same token, no matter how many disadvantages you have, it's a disadvantage. So you can, or you can afford to take some risks. Then the brilliant part is they cancel out, even if they're asymmetrical. A lot of systems and a lot of designers would say, oh, well, if you've got five advantages and one disadvantage, then that should be you an advantage. Because that's logical. That seems mathematically correct. The problem is that that goes back to encouraging the behavior of hoarding and counting advantages. Whereas just saying, nope, they just cancel out, means that in addition to speeding things up, you are rewarded, you can reward clever play. Because where this really ends up mattering is players have the agency to cancel out their own disadvantages. Setting aside if they use the inspiration system or not. Which we totally need to get into Which after. Is awesome. um, you can just play cleverly and play smart and just have that be reflected in the dice without needing to nickel and dime. This, I have found in practice, this speeds many things up. Um, and the fact that you can just throw it in and just say, yep, that's the way to do it, is brilliant. It's, it's, it's ended up being a mechanic I've then stolen and brought into my dungeon world games. That's how much I like it. Um, but, Ron, what happens if I forget about my advantage before I roll? It's almost as if you can roll the die after. And not break things. No! Um, yes. Uh, now, mechanically... An advantage and disadvantage is pretty big. Uh, it's about a plus five or a minus five. Now, I say about because when you're talking about kept dice, that number and bonus is much more variable than, than anything fixed. But that actually is kind of awesome. Because I know that I've been playing D&D long enough that I can run the numbers and do the math, and I can, I can calculate things and figure out what my best advantage is if I'm given clear numbers. If I'm given fuzzy numbers, I kind of have to let go and roll with it. And that's very liberating from my perspective. And the other thing is, I have advantage. I now have a 10% chance of hitting the Tarasque. Yes. Uh, it does kick up <laughs> before it eats me. It, yeah, the fact that it, that it kicks up the odds for crits and stuff is also super fun. Um, and it provides a hook for other mechanics, like... It is a great thing to say things will happen when you've got advantage or things will happen when you've got disadvantage without it being anything crazy. And lastly, the fact that it actually sounds like you're speaking English goes a long way. Yes, advantage and disadvantage is a very important aspect of the system. Um, but uh, I think inspiration is another. Okay. Um, yep. Specifically because... Inspiration, once again, you have it or you don't. It's a state. Yep. And this is, this is so the, this is the indie heavy part of the fight. Um, it is the fact that they put in the bonds and the gold, it, all, the, all this, all this hippy dippy role playing stuff, um, which is awesome as far as I'm concerned. Weirdly, they did something that makes it very hard to talk about, which is that they did not give it a name. 
Um, there is no actual unifying name for your alignment and your drives and your, your unique quirks and all. Not your alignment. Well, your alignment isn't in the system. Well, your alignment is your alignment is one of these things. Uh, yes, but it doesn't give you inspiration. Uh, that depends on the GM. Exactly. Yes. Uh, fair enough. Um, it is just a descriptor of the character, um, which is a fascinating decision. It is right. And this is so I'm going to call them drivers, just because that's what I, I call them in conversation. So collectively, drivers are elements about your character that are interesting and in which you can role play. And if you role play one of them, do something cool with them, make a choice related to it, whatever, um, you get inspiration. And inspiration is, oh, you get a shiny coin. And at any point, you can spend that shiny coin to get advantage all over. Now, exactly what gets you inspiration is something that's fuzzy enough that it's going to vary from table to table, but that's great because tables have different sensibilities in this regard. How you get it is what makes it interesting. Now, let's say I'm a tactical player. I'm, I, I pay a lot of attention to the map. I pay a lot of attention to my positioning. I am always playing for advantage. I'm going to be always moving, always picking the right weapon, always trying to do this. So I'm basically making, continually making an argument for the GM that I deserve an advantage on rolls, and that's how I get it. Now, Jason is a hippie role player. He just wants to do what's cool and exciting. I punch the mayor. Yes. Now, because he thinks he's doing these fun and exciting things, he is historically at a mechanical disadvantage from me. Oh, crap, guards. Right. Now, but with inspiration, if Jason's role play is consistent with the drivers as he's got set up, then Jason is basically going to be picking up inspiration, using it, picking up inspiration, using it, picking up inspiration, using it, and effectively tweaking the system by role playing, which is not a terrible outcome. Especially because that does not create a problem for me. Me, I'm going to role play once at the beginning of the session and hang on to this inspiration until I need it. Because that's a totally practical and viable way for me to go about it too. Um, it supports us both and keeps us both practically in play. Now here's the third thing you can do. Uh, ignoring the fact that, oh, I'm being eaten alive by ghouls, I've got disadvantage. Now I'm going to spend inspiration to get out of this mess exactly. is a, a fantastic lifesaver. That that uh, thing about them canceling out before, the fact that I have disadvantage from like nine different things, doesn't matter. One advantage is all I need to cancel out. Which is one inspiration, which is one making a bad decision because your character told you to. Um, but the big thing that I find is the third person at the table. When I notice that the quiet girl is doing some intensive role playing and is doing something really impressive, I can give her my inspiration. Basic fan mail, fan mail mechanic. But it's a fan mail mechanic that says, oh, now that I've lost my inspiration, now me, the dramatic player, can continue chair chewing up the scenery and then pass it on to someone else who's... Yep. So, so your social player suddenly has a, has, a, has a dynamic in this and becomes a powerful driver for the game. Also, the... Bard is yes, totally exactly. going stupid to bards. <laughs> but uh, so now, given all that, one of the other things that I think we're going to end up seeing a lot of, uh, of fun with as people do their hacks for the indie and God knows eventually the license opens up, all of these drivers are totally variables. The fact that they've given us a list of the things that the bonds and whatnot that, that we use, there's no reason we need to use those. You could have a list of aspects 
You could have a list of, of merits and flaws from your favorite World of Darkness game. You could have a list of... You could have a hundred-word essay about your character. Whatever. The quirk list from GURPS. Uh, anything that tells that, that is all you just saying up front, here's what my character is and here's what's interesting about them, so that it's communicated to the GM so that they know to trigger off it. You could use that. Um, and that's that's going to be really powerful for future games that long. Um, although I'd like to highlight something that's very interesting and well-designed and probably not noticed as much. The three things that are there are, I believe, uh, goal, yep. uh, flaw, and bond. Yep. So, goal. What is something about the setting, about your character's interaction with the setting? Flaw. What is a personal failing of the character? Bond, something else about the setting or about the world. I well, mean. specifically, the bond is, you all, I mean, at least when they're well designed, the bond is to a person. Right. And that's and that's good design, because basically what it's saying is, alright, give me a goal external to yourself, a person that's important to you, and something interesting about you. A role playing. That, I mean, and the tables don't always 100% align with that. But if I were to really boil things down, that's a good spread to get. If I had those three things about any character, I as a GM can go pretty far. And that's something that was lacking. Yep. Because prior to this, you had to say, well, I've got two rogues, I suppose we should have a heist, because, well, oh, and they're chaotic neutral, so let's have restrictive laws, and that's about all I can build off. So actually paying attention to setting design through character creation yep. is something that... Well, and this is this is something, if anyone saw what was probably the single best 4E book they put out was one of the last, which was the Neverwinter campaign setting. Um, which, as a campaign setting, is basically predicated on, here are ten roles and interesting things, and the expectation is that you guys are the ones going to be doing it. We are, we are populating this whole setting, this whole adventure, as if it is about you and your characters. And here are the tools for doing that. And... This kind of stuff is going to allow that for the future, which I think is pretty hot. Um, so now, the other I'm also going to let feel around because somebody also think, oh, I talk about feats. Okay. Okay. I loved feats when they showed up in third edition. Feats promised me all sorts of cool things. Feats promised me that I could customize my character to do cool, interesting, awesome things. And feats lied to me. Uh, I am still angry about that. Uh, the problem with feats was that the unit of advancement got particular feet was only a fraction of the concept. So if you wanted to build a cool chain fighting guy, you usually had an idea of what you were looking for, the mechanics of being a cool chain fighting guy were pretty straightforward, but to get it you needed to pick up these seven feats in this order, um, which was not very fun, and also meant that it was sometime around level 15 by the time your character actually worked the way you'd imagined it in level 1. Um, also, then you wind up getting rain of guts. Yes. Uh, so 5e has first off made feats optional, which is a good choice. Subclasses cover a lot of that ground. Backgrounds cover a lot of that ground. But I'm still using them because they're awesome. Because what they've basically done is said, hey, instead of making feats lots of little crappy things, Let's make each feat big enough to be worth picking up. And it's got to be, because the way they make feats optional is every class gets, every couple of levels, plus two points to their stats. 
um, and cause budget problems down the line. You'll see an event that's huge. Um, or you can give up that plus two for a feat, which means a feat needs to be worth plus two to the stack of your choice. That's huge. And so that means that the feats actually are designed to be that awesome. So if you want to be a really badass archer, there is a badass archer feat. The basically this, yeah, you ignore range penalties, you ignore cover penalties, and if you want to take minus five to your attack, you can do plus ten damage. All in one thing, just like, okay, I'm good with that. And most of the feats are designed along those lines. That's a good example of building the game to reflect what it is people are actually looking for to play, rather than penalizing them or nickel and dime them about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Feats are... Okay. I was of the diehard second ed group that was somewhat spurned by third ed, and I saw the feats, and they scared me. These are feats that excite me. And that's saying well, so no, and they'll be fun to add. I feel like the other thing here is that it also is yet another piece of brilliant design where you can have the like hippie and the and the optimizer at the same yes. table. If the hippie is like, I don't give a shit about this character optimization stuff, just give me my two points of stats, yep. that's fine. It doesn't break the game. Well, and it also allows for hippie feats. There, there aren't really many at the moment, but there's plenty of room for them. Feats are one more little bit of modular rule design that if you want to start adding in some crazy stuff, then you totally can. Uh, and that's exciting. Uh, and again, it's one more reason I, I really, 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 really want them to come up with a license of some sort so that, because I want to start writing this stuff. Uh, I want to start publishing this stuff. Well, I mean, too. damn. So where does 5e fall flat? <sighs> we don't know yet. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, so, some of it is going to be a taster. Bounded Accuracy is actually a good example of this. Um, 5e runs a risk that it might end up feeling a little bit samey, um, since everyone is pretty confident. Uh, bounded Accuracy, uh, it's a term I've thrown around a couple times now, so is something that is used to describe the fact that in previous editions of D&D, uh, things were pretty open-ended. Uh, a Tarasque's attack bonus could be some insane plus, plus 42 number. Yeah, so, uh, something through the roof. So there was there was no maximum AC. There was no maximum hit bonus. Uh, 5e basically says no. The highest AC is a 30. Uh, pretty much the highest of anything is a 30. Uh, and this is a really big deal because it's allowed them to compress the difficulty table so that hitting a 10 actually makes a big deal. And it means you're good at what you do. It also means that if you are a first level character, you probably have a plus five bonus, maybe plus six, at whatever you're good at. If you are a 20th level character, you have a plus 11, maybe plus 12 or 13 bonus on whatever you're good at. That is not a huge spread. Now, there are plenty of other differences between the first level character and the 20th level character. Hit points, and what spells they are available, and, and a number of attacks, and a whole bunch of other things. But it means that if you're a 20th level character and 20 first level characters come after you, you worry. Because they're probably going to hit you. Because your AC is going to be great, and sure, a bunch of them are going to miss you, but they're still going to hit you, and they're still going to damage you, and you can't shrug it off. Now, is that a bonus? Is that a feature, or is that a bug? Uh, 
Um, that's going to depend upon who you ask. And that's where some of the danger is going to come in, is if there is this letting people get as epic as they feel D&D should allow them to be. On one hand, yeah, it means that you can actually fight the friggin' Tarrasque. So, of course it's glad you'd be epic. Unless you feel like that's a cheap knockoff Tarrasque, in which case it's not. Or you feel like, okay, look, 40 goblins shouldn't be able to kill, you know, the Archbishop Pope the Third, uh, level 20 cleric. I'm willing to test that. <laughs> but the other, the other thing you're going to run into is, uh, this is a D&D game, and uh, the, one of the classic problems with D&D games is how they're going to deal with creep. Um, right now, it's pretty awesome. There's there's a set number of classes and subclasses. There's three pages of feats. The spell list is small enough to fit in the player's handbook. It's a pretty solid, pretty tight game. And in five years, when there are four more player's handbook-sized books and 36 classes to choose from and more spells than you know what to do with, well, what's that game going to look like? And the answer may be pretty crappy. Um, well, I think one of the... I don't disagree with that, but I think one of the things that they did that was smart to address that from an adventure design perspective is that your villains are no longer class villains. So five years from now, if I write an adventure, I can still make the evil arch high priest of all that is bad, and I don't care that there's 36 classes to build from because here he is, here's his hit points, here's his spells, and I'm done, because that's the role he serves. And that's actually another example of something that's good and bad, depending on how you look at it. Um, they took the 4E approach to build NPCs, which is to say all NPCs are statted up as monsters for all sorts of purposes. Um, and that's great in fights, but is also weird um, and a little bit hard to eyeball. 3E, uh, for all of its weirdness, the NPC classes were actually very clever. Uh, it was very nice to be able to say the mayor of this town is a level 4 commoner, the captain of the guard is a level 3 warrior, and he's got 6 level 1 warriors working for him, and outside of town is a level 5 witch, and that gave you what you needed. If, if you've been looking at the DMG previews, it looks like there is at least the option of doing that, but... Yep. Yeah, it, it looks like that's they're going to have that open, but I'm, I'm trying not to look at the previews too much, um, just because I'm obsessive. <laughs> So two, two, one very brief thing and then one comment about where I think it falls by. Um, first of all, we, we sort of already have 36 classes. Like, literally, like, how many? That is true. Yes. We actually have that many, so it's like, why do we need that anymore? But you're right, inevitably they're going to do it. They're going to publish it. I think where it falls by a little bit, potentially, is XP. Um, you, you know, they've got all this cool hippie stuff with the bond, ideal, bond trade, and all this stuff, and then it's like, oh, you kill some monsters, you get some XP. So, here's the trade-off. The thing that makes that less bothersome from my perspective. Your level matters a little bit less. Uh, which is weirdly something that's it, it's one of the things that the game was reminiscent of Dungeon World. There are a few. Um, because of the bounded accuracy, because of the fact that there's really no longer that one-to-one parity of monsters, having a group that is multiple levels is no longer the death warrant that it was in predispositions of the game. Um, I, I've got a regular 1E game that is full on classic old school, and the simple reality is we optimize like hell so it doesn't kill us all. Um, and it's it's going to be nice to be able to say this adventure is for the characters level 7 to 9, 
and know that the level seven character is not just going to be for the grinder. Um, so I think you're right that it's still going to have that, that the fact that it's still going to get XP on monsters is probably going to be is still a little bit of a throwback. Hopefully the DMG will offer some other options for doing it. Um, but the fact that level is a little bit less critical also hopefully makes that a little less painful. I just think that it's boring. Okay, fair enough. That well, it, 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 uh, building off your adventure technology, right, um, looking at adventures as examples of yep. how things should run, when you look at Rise of the Tiamat, <clears throat> like right after the first episode, they basically say, and from here on out, we suggest milestone-based experience, and we'll pace it out, and we'll tell you when your character should level up, and you know, don't don't worry about the monster experience. Yep, makes less. All right, there's at least a little time, and I've been yammering far too much. So, um, yeah, let me throw in one other thing that I found very interesting. So, um, in addition to the making Vancean magic an interesting optional choice rather than the mandatory thing. Um, you'll notice that a big proportion of the player's handbook is spells. That, and that has always been the case in D&D. And the, they, the spells is that actually D&D has always had fewer rules than we think it does, but the fact that each spell is effectively a rule is where a lot of the bulk comes from. And they leverage that beautifully. Yes. So subclasses of uh, I am a nature paladin means, oh, I'm grabbing things from the druid list. And those are my magic abilities that happen to be spell-like, and I've got a certain number of them. So making everyone a sorcerer oh, as the well, default and, way of adding in magic. Oh, oh dear God, making spells flat damage was brilliant. Um, and this is, Gale Force 9 is going to benefit from this. These are the guys who are making the spells cards. Um, I bought power cards for 4E, and they were a waste. Because the big problem was you still had to cross-reference and look up everything to use one of them. Because spells are self-contained. Fireball does this much damage and this much more damage if you choose to spend a different slot. That All that information you fit on a card without needing to look anything up. That is wonderful, and it also means that we no longer have to worry about the wizard killing archmage demons with second-level spells because they've all scaled up. Just a, It's just a nice tweak, and I look forward to buying spell cards because it's going to be that elegant for it. Um, yeah, it, it simply allowing for spell-like effects to be modeled with spells. Yeah, <laughs> or well, I mean that's that's the thing. The the paladin and the ranger class don't, and even the warlock to a lesser extent, don't make much sense until you start picking their spells. A lot of the stuff that you think of as classic paladin stuff, especially the this smiting and the laying on hands and whatnot, are actually just hidden in their spell list. And it's it's clever, uh, but you got to find it. While we're on the topic of spells, do you guys should talk a little bit about the whole buffing issue from three E and concentration. Oh, concentration! Yes, thank you for reminding me. Concentration is brilliant. Concentration basically says you have spell request concentration. Great, concentrate to maintain it. If you get damaged, there's a risk of you breaking it. Blah 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 blah. But what's important is you can only maintain concentration on one spell at a time, and virtually every buff in the game requires concentration, and most of them have have a limited duration, so like a minute or less with a handful of exclamations. So, the upshot is they could go nuts on the buffs. They could make the buffs awesome because you're not going to stack them. And that's huge. Uh, for anyone who remembers playing 3E, 
where it was, all right, now we're going to sit down and cast all the stat enhancements and all things. All right, and now we're going to be death for a little while, and then we're going to rest. That is that is so nice to be passed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a beat for that. If you don't mind the, if you don't want to lose your spells quite as much for uh, concentration, they could easily. Yeah, And they've pretty much said they're not going to be introducing anything that allows you to maintain a second concentration. Uh, that was one of my first fears when I saw it. I'm like, oh, I can see like a magic item that effectively maintains concentration. Uh, they made it clear. I'm sure that eventually things like that will creep in, especially third party. But they've made it clear that's not the direction they're going. Just, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the monster tech because we've been mostly focusing on players. Oh, the monsters! Um, well, the monsters are actually interesting because technically they are less interesting than they were in either three or five or four. Um, three, the addition of, of classes to monsters was awesome. The fact that it allowed that level of customization was really, really potent, really, really neat, and also a bookkeeping nightmare. Um, and led to some... And, and it really was ultimately... It was fun for GMs because it was like, how abusive can I make this monster? Oh, let's see. An ogre with the Chainmaster prestige class. Hmm, he's got reach 15 and kills anything that gets close to it. Yes, I will use one of those. So the fact that it doesn't allow me to be quite as much of an asshole is kind of a kind of an um, Similarly, the fact that it does not have the minions and bosses and, and lieutenant kind of stuff from 40 seems like it's technically a step back. But in all of these cases, I actually feel like those are complexities that it was probably better to get rid of. Um, the 5e monsters, if anything in 5e is a callback to first edition, it is the monsters. Um, I had, every time, as I read my way through the monster manual, I was more reminded of the first edition monster manual and all of the ways that, that excited me than anything else. Really? Yeah, well, because what it really did, because I mean, second edition's problem was that it had the full folio entries, right? Those right. Were cool, but they got padded out. Right. Really right. hard. Um, whereas, the classic Monster Manual monsters, you read them and they have to be interesting and exciting on their own merits. And that's what 5e is doing, saying we're going to put in monsters that are interesting and fun enough for you to use. And because of the bounded accuracy thing, they're also no longer only usable for levels 6 through 7. Um, now, monsters can show up at any level, be useful at any level, and interact with your game at any level. And that totally changes the equation of things. Now, I still think the loss of bosses is actually kind of a pain, um, and they've pretty clearly been introducing them in the adventures, so there's clearly some thinking in terms of how to do that. On the other hand, I don't think the loss of minions is any real problem. Um, minions, uh, they were mooks, and mooks are fun if you're playing Hong Kong action, but are a little bit weird in being. Not to mention, I mean, I just hacked if I wanted to. Yeah, they're wanted, sure, but they're disadvantaged. Yeah, but I take beat them back for a couple rounds and then they stop being disadvantaged. Well, right, that's thing. If you're playing, if you're playing a game where your guy, where you're playing guys who cut through hundreds of hundreds of soldiers, then great, put them in. But that's a very specific genre right. feel, and it's not. Conan fights a bunch of guys, but he doesn't fight a million guys. Right. So. Um, so yeah, we don't have much more time. Are there any last? 
There's one other thing I think we really cool to touch on is the whole like inclusiveness thing because I feel like oh, oh yes, oh, yes. Oh, that's how to scope the mechanics, but I, I do. Oh, I will give full process. Oh my god, they've done such a wonderful job with the art. Um, yes, it is fantastic and delightful to not be a vast cascade of white dudes and chicks in bathing suits, um, which is unfortunately the norm. Now, there are they're they're far from the only company that's making strides in this regard. Uh, Paizo has been wonderful in this. Lots of small companies are doing a really good job of keeping their art. But D&D is the flagship. And it is really, really nice to see 21st century art, 21st century product. Um, and holy crap. The human, the human iconic picture, she looks so badass. But the only uh, thing that well, I... Put the purple out. That is the one thing I want. <laughs> what about oh, the halflings? The, oh, the halflings are creepy looking. Oh, and the elves are purple. And that... And oh, <laughs> and it grates on me like nailed on a chalkboard. But I forgive it because the rest of the art is so good and so awesome. The only thing that I'd put up uh, that could put up a fight for the uh, human woman, uh, human fighter, is the human soldier. Oh, that's <laughs> well, and, and, and that's the only competition. That's totally the anime fan. Yeah. Oh, oh, but the wizard. Oh, the, the wizard, wizard is fantastic. fantastic. He's also an older dude. Yeah, which I love because now that I'm well, old, yeah. I, I care about this sort of thing. Um, there is one particular scene where it's, I think it's five different cultures being represented, but just by clothing styles, yep. but the various adventures on yeah. in a caravan. Just and, yeah, and it's not, it's not just, ooh, and we have the exotic monk, and everyone else is a white dude. No, it's like, well, there's a diversity here. Um, so, yes. so yes, it's awesome. Uh, Except the halflings. <laughs> uh, although I'm going to, I will highlight that while the uh, art is fantastic, the uh, language on sexuality uh, and gender is, is better, but not perfect. No, but there's no perfect yet. Yes, I'll, I'll totally give you that. But just wanted to hang a lantern on that. It's better, and it's a step forward, but it's not all the way there. Sure, but I wouldn't know it. I, even as someone who struggled with that in our own stuff, I, I could not tell you what the best language for that is yet. It is still a contentious enough topic within its own within its own culture and discussion outside of me. Right, right. Anyway. Sidebar for those that you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, I am more than happy to nerd about this topic at the drop of a hat, so do not hesitate to, to grab me for some godforsaken reason we want to hear more. All right, thank you. And thank you, Jason, for reading. To Rob as a designer, what I really want, the holy grail of 5e, is to see the art design guidance notes that led to that halfway. Oh, I just want the name. I want to know who said, I, 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 I want to know who said, we draw Tucky. I think they just said that. I agree if Jonathan Colbert is running y'all.